are you one of those people that would love to know something about the future? The rest of you are lying if you didn't put your hand up. Would you like to know what the weather is this Thursday? Yeah, yeah, I know you would. We're going to get the remnants of Ida probably. So Fred and I are going to go golfing on Tuesday instead of Thursday because we've been rained out or heated out a couple times now. And, uh, you know, so we're going to try to get this in on I mean on Tuesday, right, Fred? Okay. Uh, so the weather forecast is one attempt that we have of trying to know the future. What are some other things that, that we, we try to know about in advance? Just call them out. Traffic. The stock market. What's that a futures thing? You know, people buying futures of stock and trying to anticipate. There are a lot of things in life that we, we would really like to know what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in the future. I've been thinking this past week of what it would be like in our relationships with one another if we knew the future. We get married and we make these promises for better, for worse, and richer and poorer and sickness and in health. We're going to stay together for the rest of our life and we make those as 20-year-olds or 25-year-olds or 30-year-olds or 50, I don't know, whenever. We make those promises to one another not knowing what the future is going to hold. Well, what would, what would happen if you did know Oh, this person is going to get cancer when they're 35 years old. I'm not going to marry them because I don't want to go through that, right? What, what would it be like if you knew that somebody, a, a close friend, a colleague, a coworker, uh, was going to fail you in some way, was going to disappoint you in some way? What would that do in your relationship with them right now? I'm going to just give you a moment to mull that over because this is probably one of the most disturbing thoughts I've had in a long, long time. What would happen in our relationships if we knew how this person was going to respond, react, how they were going to, 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 to change in the future? Is that terrifying or am I the only one? Would I be the kind of a person that would make the same commitments to that person if I knew they were going to let me down? Would I be the kind of a person who would, would love them and treat them kindly no matter what happened in the future? Okay, I'm going to open the altar now. We can. <laughs> well, God does know the future, doesn't he? God exists outside of time, so we presume that he knows past, present, and future. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows all of us and the choices that we are going to make. And yet, God makes covenants with us. Can I get a woo-hoo or a <laughs> thank you, Jesus? Uh, one example of this God knowing the future is found in Deuteronomy. If you want to turn with me, will be in chapters 31 and 32 here in a moment. 
this is an example of God knowing the future. And we get a glimpse into that foreknowledge, and we get a glimpse into how God chooses to act regardless of the fact that he knows what's going to happen. So in, in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, uh, God says to Moses, the day of your death is near. <laughs> One thing that God knew before Moses knew. Moses, 120 years old. But there were stories of people that lived much longer. But God says, Moses, you're, you're getting ready to die. Your, your life is about over. And I have prepared for Joshua, your lieutenant, to take over and lead the Israelites. After 40 years of wilderness wandering, Joshua is going to be the one who is going to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land. Promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants for generation after generation. Joshua is going to lead the people across the river into the promised land. God appears to Joshua and Moses in a pillar of cloud, and he tells them that in the future, after they've crossed the river, after they've entered the promised land, God says the Israelites are going to prostitute themselves to the gods of the people of Canaan. That is strong language, isn't it? That's a real wake-up call. After paring down the Israelites, generations of people who died in the wilderness during those 40 years, he's now got the young bucks, the people who have seen God do these extraordinary things. Manna, six days out of seven. Quail, rock, giving forth water. Clothes that don't wear out, shoes that are just as good as the day they left 40 years ago. God has done these extraordinary things, but he says, the people of Israel, the Israelites, my chosen people, are going to prostitute themselves with the gods of the people of Canaan. They will forsake me and they will break the covenant. And he says, I'm going to be angry. <laughs> I would too. He says, there are going to be disasters and hardship that I'm going to bring on the people. And then God gives Moses a song that he wants Moses to teach to the Israelites. I'm going to give you a song, and I want you to teach it to the Israelites so that when they abandon me, and we know it's going to happen, when they abandon me, this song will serve as a testimony against them. Sing this song once you've forsaken me. Sing this song when you've deserted me. Sing this song when you've prostituted yourself with other foreign gods, gods who are not gods at all. Sing this song as a testimony against yourselves. I imagine this is God's way of saying, I told you so. <laughs> Have you found that there are there are songs that come to you at certain times. We sang, great is thy faithfulness. That's probably a song that if you grew up singing hymns, you've probably hummed that a time or two during some difficult times of life, haven't you? God is faithful. 
and I can sing that song. The beauty of songs is that it locks truth into our memories in ways that other ways just can't, uh, can't accomplish. I have a horrible memory, but if I learn something through a song, I'm more likely to be able to quote the verse or bring back the message of that song. So Moses, here's a song that I want you to teach the Israelites so that when they fail me, they'll sing this song. Perhaps they'll remember the things that will bring them back. But it's a way of me saying, guys, I told you so. Why did you go down this path? Why didn't you remain faithful to me? So let's pick up in chapter 31, the, the last verse there, chapter uh, 31, verse 30. Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. And here's the song. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They, on the other hand, are corrupt, corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old, consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found them, speaking of Egypt. In a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. Aren't those beautiful, extraordinary words reminding the people of Israel what a blessing God had been to them. He had poured out treasures in their life. He had taken slaves and turned them into masters of their own nation. Woohoo! But let's pick up at verse 15. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. What happens when we 
when everything is going our way and we, we start to feel that uh, we are the masters of our own destiny and things are going pretty well for us, they abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. How could that have happened? After all of the blessings and faithfulness and riches that God had poured out, how could they turn to gods who are not gods? Johnny come lately fake gods. How in the world could that have happened? Continue with verse 19. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see that their end will be, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down the realm of the dead below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set fire, the, uh, set afire the foundations of the mountains. God sees the future. He sees people who were blessed and yet turned to other gods, and so he is going to pour out punishment on them. God will give them over to the consequences of their faithlessness. God will use other nations to punish his rebellious children. These other nations, he goes on to describe, will think that they have defeated Israel, not realizing that God is using them to discipline Israel. Pick up in verse 34. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people. Think about that word vindicate for a moment. What's it like when you have been falsely accused, when you have been misused by other people, but then the tables are turned and your righteousness is made known, the rightness of your way comes to light. People realize that they had misjudged you. You know what that feeling is like? The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants. 
When he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free, he will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in, the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them give you shelter. Ha, ha, ha. So now that I myself am he, there is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, as surely as I live forever will I, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders, Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on their enemies and make atonement for his land and people. You see the arc of where this is going? God is a God of blessing and riches and faithfulness. And yet his people invariably go wrong desert him, turn their back on him. And God uses whatever means necessary to pour out punishment so that they'll come to their senses. And what is always the end of God's story? Vindication, repentance, restoration, new life. So this song that Moses is teaching the Israelites and that hopefully will be locked into their memories generation after generation, this song is a song about God's faithfulness expressed in blessings and warning and discipline and mercy and repentance. Despite the unfaithfulness of his people, God remains faithful This Old Testament definition of faithfulness is a beautiful one. It's the total dependability of God. <laughs> no matter who we are, we've let somebody down, haven't we? We haven't measured up to the expectations. We've fallen short of the ideal. We've failed when we should have succeeded. We've been weak. It doesn't matter. We have all been undependable to one another, to the people that are closest to, to God. But God is never undependable. Captured best in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, he is the rock. His words are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Oh, we've shaken our fist in God's face, haven't we? <laughs> 
we've complained, we've felt righteously indignant because something happened we felt God wasn't going to do. But the truth of the matter is God knows best and God is always faithful. The faithful God of the Old Testament finds an even clearer expression in the life and teaching and storytelling of Jesus, doesn't he? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 represent the fifth of five dissertations that Jesus gave. Matthew collects the teachings, the sayings of Jesus in five groups. The first one is the Sermon on the the Mount back there in Matthew chapter 5 and following. And then there are other times where Jesus speaks to disciples and opponents and he teaches. Well, the fifth of these dissertations, these collected sayings of Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. The reason Matthew gathers these things into five different discourses is because he wants people to think about the five books of the law. Say them with me. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. Deuteronomy is the fifth book. And here in chapter 24 and 25, we have the fifth discourse. Perhaps Matthew is trying to say, remember that book of Deuteronomy, which is essentially Moses' last sermon. Moses, on his nearing his deathbed, is going to say, let me recap, let me sum up the last 40 years of our life. Let me tell you how faithful God has been, and let me give you a song in which you're going to remember that God is faithful even if you're not faithful. So here in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is nearing the end of his life. This discourse is given after the triumphal entry, the last week of Jesus's life. He's having conversations, running gun battles with Pharisees and Sadducees and the like, but he's also taking his disciples aside and he's teaching them. And this is the last time Jesus is going to be able to spend this time with his disciples. He's reminding them of the things that they need to be reminded of. Chapter 25, verse 14. The, Jesus, the kingdom of God is, a real, is the theme of these things. So verse 14 of chapter 25, again, the kingdom of God, Jesus said, will be like a man going on a journey, like Moses getting ready to leave, like Jesus getting ready to be crucified. A man going on a journey, he calls his servants and entrusts his wealth to them. Like all of those blessings that God had given the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. Entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Not so unlike the Israelites who started following after other, other gods. 
After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man. You discipline people. You allow bad things to happen in people's lives. You're, you don't always seem to be there when I need you. you, you you're, you're, you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here it is. Here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers at least and gotten 0.001% interest. So that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was speaking, of course, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, the people who had taken the treasure of God and had hoarded it and buried it and not brought it to light for the Gentile nations around them. Jesus told these parables to his disciples just as Moses had sung the song to the Israelites. This farewell story of Jesus was about the faithfulness of God, the master in this parable expressed in bags of gold and mirrored in the faithfulness of the first two servants, at least. God's people. These parables were serving as a warning that God's faithfulness shouldn't be tested. We shouldn't presume on the faithfulness of God. They're also a reminder that God's faithfulness can become our faithfulness as well. I feel badly for those Israelites that were going into the promised land because they had Joshua, woohoo, a man filled with the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, the Holy Spirit wasn't evenly distributed to all the rest of them. Jesus hadn't died and been resurrected, and the Holy Spirit yet had not come on all of the people as it did on the day of Pentecost. And so those people were, in a sense, continuing to wander in the wilderness. It's inevitable, perhaps, that they would have failed God. But Jesus comes and he releases the Holy Spirit, 
And so not only is he an example of God's faithfulness, but he becomes the conduit through which we can become faithful. We can be like that first and second servant. Jesus is in essence saying, folks, there's a 66.6666666% chance that you could be just as faithful as I was. Those aren't bad odds, brothers and sisters. <laughs> the odds were much less back with Joshua and that group going into the promised land. God's faithfulness can become our faithfulness. Jesus is an optimist. He sees the future and he expects God's faithfulness to the human race will be a catalyst for the development of human faithfulness. Paul gives us some very specific directions on how we might become as faithful as those first two servants, as faithful as Jesus. If you want to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Paul gives us a, a pathway, marching orders for how to become a faithful family of God. Chapter 5, I'll begin reading at verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Does that sound like what the Israelites got involved with after they went into the promised land? All of that and more. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Say it with me. But. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I, I want to draw your attention to two verses there. The first one is 16, where Paul says, walk by the Spirit. This word walk means to consecrate yourself, to commit yourself. To throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, I am going to be a complete abject failure if, if you don't take over my life. 
I have spent X number of years just making an absolute mess of my life and in the lives of everybody around me, but Lord, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I want to walk by your spirit. I want to be under your constant moment-by-moment -moment direction with your guidance and your control. I want the indwelling Holy Spirit to bring all of this to maturity in my life. It's as if this new life that we have in Christ gives us a, a, an internal guidance system. It's GPS for the human soul in whatever voice you want. It's God's ability moment by moment to direct us into paths of righteousness. The Israelites didn't have that as Joshua led them into the, into, the, into the promised land. But Jesus, after the day of Pentecost, says, we can have the Holy Spirit in us guiding our every step. And then verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. To live by the Spirit sums up this whole walking by the Spirit. It's the logical conclusion or the extension of walking by the Spirit means that we can keep in step with the Spirit. Our walk will look like Jesus' walk. Our day-to-day -day life decisions, actions, words, affections can look like Jesus's. If we walk by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. You know, there's a, there's a personal choice that we have to make. Will we walk like Jesus? Will we consecrate ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That's a choice that you and I have to make. God says, I will be a blessed, faithful Lord of your life, but you have to receive that gift, right? You have to make the decision to follow him, right? Since we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. What starts as a personal choice now becomes something of the community. The, the word, the phrase keep in step there implies marching in line with other people. I'm part of a bagpipe band. We do parades. And so there's a group of us, and not only playing this foolish instrument, but we also have to pay attention to whether we're in line with the people that we're supposed to be. Are we following the person ahead of us? Are we even with the people on both sides of us? Are we marching at the same speed? Are we keeping the right distance between us? This is the hard work to do when you're playing this foolish instrument. This is what the what Paul is, is referring to, he says, you've consecrated yourself. You've thrown yourself on the mercy of God. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now keep in step, not only with the Holy Spirit who's leading the band, but keep in step with the people around us. Faithfulness is not just something that we have in relationship to our, our, our God, but faithfulness is something that we have in regard to 
those who are marching along with us, with other believers. The Israelites to whom Moses was singing were to be a community of faithfulness, and they failed miserably. The disciples to whom Jesus was telling these parables were a community of faithfulness, and they were bumbles, but <laughs> they got it. The Galatian congregations to whom Paul is writing this letter were communities of faithfulness, and they were stumbling a bit. But Paul was saying, because of the Holy Spirit, you can keep in step, not only with God, but with one another. God is faithful to and within communities. We are to be faithful to and within communities. We can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to think that we can be Lone Ranger individualists. We have to start being faithful to one another, just as God has been faithful to us. Oftentimes we think that since God knows the future, he must determine or predestine what happens in the future, and that is not the case. God knows that there are those who will rebel against him, but the fact that he teaches Moses that song to teach to the Israelites, the fact that Jesus tells these parables to his disciples reflects the fact that God would love to be proven wrong. <laughs> I know that you're going to fail me, but I would love to be proven wrong. I'm giving you this warning. I'm giving you this song to sing. I'm telling you these stories. I'm filling with the Spirit so that you'll prove me wrong. It's a subtle distinction, but it's a vitally important distinction. God doesn't determine that we are going to be unfaithful. God gives us extraordinary resources up to and including Jesus Christ, the spirit of Jesus in us, so that we can be faithful. I say God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can be faithful. I have no clue what I'm going to be facing this week. I, I have a little card I bring with me on Sundays where I, I fill in my schedule. There are appointments, there are meetings, there are things. that All of that could change in the blink of an eye, couldn't it? And there are countless things that can happen that we're completely unprepared for. But this morning, Jesus, Paul, Jesus through Paul is reminding us that God gives us his Holy Spirit so that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit, which includes faithfulness, which means faithfulness, dependability with our relationship with God, but also with one another. So it doesn't matter what's going to happen to us this week, does it? We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be faithful people. Lynn is going to come and lead us in a song, not unlike the song that... Moses taught to the Israelites, except this is a much happier song. <laughs> but I hope it will be a reminder to you as you walk through this week side by side and following the person ahead of you and ultimately following the Holy Spirit. I hope this will be a reminder of the capability that God gives us to be faithful to him. Let's sing this together.
extraordinarily faithful to us. You have given us life. And you have given us new life. You have planted us in marriages and families which may have been a challenge, but you have been faithful to us in providing the grace necessary to make these families, marriages, households of faith. Lord, you have poured out your blessing at work and in school and in neighborhoods. Lord, you have been faithful to us. And it is our desire that the grace that you have poured into our lives would overflow into the lives of others. Lord, we consecrate ourselves in the week ahead that this might be a, a week of faithful love and compassion, of faithful storytelling and encouraging, of faithful prayer and contemplation, of faithful acts of love and kindness. Lord, only, only your Holy Spirit can make this happen on a consistent basis in our lives, and so we throw ourselves on your mercy. Be faithful in us, Lord. Build your kingdom in us and through us, Lord. Make us a holy people. In Christ's name we pray, and all of God's children say, Amen. Amen.